Welcome to the Waves Slates podcast about gender, feminism, and politicking. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today you've got me, Shayna Roth, a senior producer here at Slate. Later in the show, I'll be joined by NPR politics reporter Danielle Kurtzleben to talk about a little election that's coming up way too quickly. In June of 2022, the Washington Post's Bill Donahue claimed that 2022 was the year of over-the-top masculinity in politics. He opened the piece by saying, quote, if you look at the campaign ads for this year's Senate races, the message is clear. Men live in Missouri, in the heart of America, on the ruby red plains where the pickups are large and the flags fly high, end quote. And he pointed to quite a few races. He pointed to former Missouri governor and then Republican Senate candidate Eric Greitens posting a video of himself at a shooting range with Donald Trump Jr. Striking fear in the hearts of liberals everywhere, folks. Then there was Senate candidate Jim Lammon from Arizona, who had a Super Bowl ad where he literally puts himself in the Old West in like a showdown against people that are supposed to be Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and somebody named Shifty Kelly, and I'm not 100% sure who that was supposed to be. It's a DC game! Well, if it isn't Big Jim Lynn. We're tired of being pushed around. And open borders. And gas prices. The good people of Arizona have had enough of you. It's time for a showdown. I'm Jim Lehman, and I approve this message. And the list goes on, including candidate Mike Collins shooting a wheelbarrow. All of this is to say that, yes... 2022 was indeed full of manly men doing manly man things. But macho man politics or penis politics or whatever you want to call them have been around for a long time. We are and have been constantly seeing campaigns between men, usually white, that are dependent on the candidate coming across as typically aggro male as possible. They're riding horses. They're holding shotguns. They're talking about military service. It's It's just a lot. From Ronald Reagan to Teddy Roosevelt to Vladimir Putin to the one we're probably all thinking about, Donald Trump, men have been using their bona fides as a stereotypical male with a capital M or as a guy you want to get a beer with as a reason for people to vote for them. And I mean, it works. And this method of campaigning isn't stopping anytime soon. Given that we are just a year out from an extremely important presidential election, well, I figured it was time to bring in an expert. Danielle Kurtzleben is a longtime political reporter for NPR who is constantly thinking about gender in politics. Her new Substack piece, The Race I Will Watch Most Closely in 2024 Besides President, was honestly everything I needed to read in this moment. And she's going to join me so we can get into all of it right after this break. Thank you. 
Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, and we really hope you do, please subscribe to our feed. You get new episodes every Thursday morning, and while you're there, you should definitely check out our other episodes too. Last week, we had this great episode that was all about the WNBA, and if you still are not convinced that the WNBA is the best sport that you should be watching right now by the end of that episode, I I just don't know what to do with you. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shayna Roth, and I'm joined now by NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben. Danielle, welcome. Ah, I'm so glad to be back. It's so great to have you back, particularly with this topic, which I feel like that newsletter that you recently had where you use the term penis politics, it spoke to me so hard, and I just immediately wanted to talk to you. So let's start with a little bit of groundwork. What are the signifiers of a macho man politician? What are we talking about here when we say penis politics? It really depends. Look, I could go on for 45 minutes or 45 seconds, but I mean, it depends on the candidate, depends on the person, but often it's about strength, toughness, about showing yourself playing sports or shooting a gun or saying that you are tougher or stronger than your opponent who is a pansy or a coward. You know, you could beat them up behind the school, which is something that Joe Biden said at one point about Donald Trump, if I'm remembering correctly. It's that sort of thing. And not all men engage in it to the same degree by any means. It functions differently at different levels. But that's like some basic contours that we see, especially on the national level and the presidential level. It's the John Wayne ideal, right? It's this idea that men are men with like a capital M and a deep voice. Yes, but here I'm going to get into the nuances and also shamelessly plug my work. You mentioned my newsletter, which listeners can find at daniellekurtzleben.substack.com. It's hard to spell, but you can find it. I know you can. But I have a newsletter from months and months ago called The Dave Barry Theory of Winning the Presidency, which, hear me out, this is less dumb than it sounds. But there's a book that Dave Barry wrote years and years ago called Dave Barry's Complete Guide to Guys. This was my favorite book when I was in middle school because I was the coolest girl around. Of course it was. But the thesis of the book is that there are men and there are guys. Like, if you are a person who thinks of yourself as a dude in one way or another, you can either be a man or a guy. And men are capable, strong, confident, you know, military leaders who build things and so on. And guys, you know, they like beer and they like boobs and they make jokes and they're not serious, but they're a lot of fun to hang out with. And so this is one of the finer points of, I think, of how men, guys, dudes get elected in America is, especially as president, Yes, it helps to be a man, but it really helps to be a guy, to be, I mean, the proverbial person you can drink a beer with, but especially a male person you can drink a beer with, you know? Well, that takes me back to George W. Bush's election. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I think, in middle school, but even I remember at the time constantly hearing people be like, yeah, that's the guy I want to go get a beer with. And and that was sort of the phrase and the thing about him is, oh, he's cool. You want to go get a beer with him. Right. Yeah. The irony there, I remember people pointing out, was that he was a recovered alcoholic. And so, like, he, you you could not have gotten a beer with Joe. But, but it's still, I totally understand. He's a guy you want to kick back and hang out with. I get it. I mean, a lot of people could probably sit down and hang out with George W. Bush and get along just fine. 
But this is a thing that I think about a lot because we've talked about getting a beer with a politician for decades, eons, whatever. But the point of that, when you really think about it, or when you really think about especially guys being president, is like, okay, only men can be guys. Women can't be guys. And what does the woman you want to drink a beer with look like? Because guys define themselves in opposition to men. It's like, yeah, there are men over there. I'm cool. You know, I'm chiller than that guy. Like, Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar, but people thought they could, you know, hang with him, probably because of his Southern accent, probably because he was, yes, very charming, probably also because he had the reputation for liking ladies a little bit, um, which is fraught, and I realize how fraught it is. The reason that I bring up masculinity politics so much is when we wonder why women aren't elected why there aren't more women in Congress, and especially why a woman hasn't been elected president, I think this is a big thing. It's to think of guys as having a gender as well. Because within the gender of ladies, women, female-identifying people, women haven't had that archetype to push against of, oh, there's that serious woman over there who became president. That is what a capable top-of-the-nation leader looks like, but I'm the cool gal who's going to be it next. I can do that, but I can ha- do it with style. Like, that that hasn't existed yet. And so what I'm wondering is when and how that sort of gal emerges, because that's what it will take to get a woman into the presidency. Right, because right now, women who are campaigning, you either get the Hillary Clinton edit where you are too competent and you are, quote unquote, shrill, or you get the shrew edit in all of that. Or, I mean, if you're more of a traditional, quote unquote, woman and you like lean into that femininity, then people are like, why are you even running? You know, you get kind of like that Sarah Palin edit where you're a bimbo. It's like those are the sort of the archetypes that women are allowed to exist within in politics, and neither of them work, particularly for president. Right. And I think it does function differently by party, by the way, and we can get into that. But let's talk about the Democratic side, which has a better track record of electing and nominating women. In 2020, we did see more types of women come out and run for president. You had, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris. You had all of these different women who were able to show more of themselves. I do remember Elizabeth Warren specifically drinking a beer on camera. And Kamala Harris wore her converses. They found ways to be a little more casual. But make no mistake, first of all, those women were... All of them, with the exception of, I believe, with the exception of Marion Williamson and Tulsi Gabbard, because Marion Williamson has never held office, they had never lost an election between them. These are people who had, who were so high achieving, like just, and Elizabeth Warren was the lady with the plans. Amy Klobuchar was kind of seen as a little mean, and Kirsten Gillibrand was seen as, you know, the hard-charging feminists. Like, they all still, I think, had these identities of being these lofty, on a pedestal, untouchable ladies, you know? And by comparison, I think about, you know, Joe Biden's gaffes and Bernie Sanders's, you know, messy hair. And I mean, this is a little, this is a different type of race, but I think a lot about John Fetterman. A lot about John Fetterman, who, look, I, I am not making any commentary here on his abilities as a politician and how good of a senator he is. But it is impossible for me to picture the equivalent of a lady 
John Fetterman running and winning for office right now, let alone non-binary. I mean, we're not even there yet. We're talking about ladies right now. I just, what would a lady in basketball or cargo shorts who's bald and is built like a bouncer, I mean, what is the lady equivalent of that? And would voters be as excited about her? Because people got captivated by that guy. Oh, absolutely loved him. And it was all part of the whole package. Like, they loved the whole package. It wasn't, I like this guy for his politics, even though he wears, you know, shorts in the middle of February. It was, I love this guy because of all of that. And oh, by the way, he's pro-weed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yes. Weed, I'm sure, was part of it, too. But yes, like, yeah, his progressive politics, I'm sure, were a big part of it. But I mean, yes, you, you entirely get what I'm saying. So I'm glad that you brought up Republicans and Democrats and sort of the difference in how those two parties play into these identity politics, because your Substack piece honed in on Lucas Kuntz versus Josh Hawley, which is a race that I found really interesting because not only is Democrat Kuntz putting forward that he is a manly man, but he's also calling into question Hawley's masculinity with this ad about running. I'm Lucas Kuntz. And I approve this message because Josh Hawley is a fraud and a coward. And by the time I'm done with him, the whole world's going to know it. So keep on running, Josh. Keep on running. And when I think of these types of identity politics, you really do tend to think of Republicans being the ones that want to roll around in the masculinity stuff and Democrats sort of trying to play it um, you know, non-gender specific at all. I mean, were you surprised that a Democrat is essentially calling his opponent a wuss? Not really. I mean, Democrats have done this sort of thing in the past as well. Um, I mean, Joe Biden, for example, like I said earlier, he like very much tries to be a sort of good old boy isn't quite it, but just, you know, like Uncle Joe, who, you know, just wants to kick back and also wants to say he's tougher than Trump and that sort of thing. He once threatened to punch him in the nose or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Joe Biden isn't above that. And different presidential candidates in the past have telegraphed their gender, their bona fides in different ways. I mean, Barack Obama, very, very, uh, like, Basketball is his hobby, but no photo or video is posted by a president without some real thought going into it. And there's a reason that he liked people to see the photos and so on of him shooting hoops. It made him look like a regular guy, a cool guy, but also a guy who still got it. He's young. He can do this. He's powerful. You know, that sort of thing. So getting back to Lucas Kuntz and Josh Hawley, I was not surprised to see Lucas Kuntz do that because what you have in this race is Josh Hawley, who, just primer for listeners, Republican senator from Missouri, who, first of all, has written a book called Manhood. It just came out this year. He had a podcast with his wife where they talked about marriage, raising kids, really kind of what are almost retrograde in the Republican Party now, quote unquote, family values, traditional values, that sort of thing, very focused around Christianity as well. And also Josh Hawley, who raised his fist to the January 6th protesters and was caught on tape during the riot, running through the halls of Congress, running to safety, which a lot of people have laughed at. They laughed at it during those January 6th hearings. So that's Josh Hawley. 
Lucas Kuntz is doing what is a pretty logical tactic here. He's released a couple of ads where he's saying, look at this guy, this Josh Hawley. He wrote a whole book on manhood, but look at him run away from the rioters. Well, I'm Lucas Kuntz, and let me tell you about me versus Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. I grew up middle class or lower middle class, however you want to put it. Josh Hawley has never been in the military. Well, I have. And it it goes on a bit like that. And I'm really paraphrasing and making it uh, a little hyperbolic, but not much. So you could argue that he's just playing on the field that Josh Hawley set up, that Josh Hawley said, hey, I'm a man. Manhood is a really cardinal virtue. And Lucas Kuntz is saying, cool, you go ahead and call yourself a man. I'll beat you at your own game. Fine. So it's not a terrible surprise because it makes strategic sense. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because this is not Lucas Kuntz's first time doing this. Yeah. Uh, He was in his race against Mark McCluskey, the guy who waved his gun at Black Lives Matter protesters outside of his house along with his wife. And Lucas put out an ad showing himself with two sets of guns, one of which are his bulging biceps, I'll point out. (laughs) I mean, so he clearly has run this game before. I mean, does it work? Do you think is it working for him? I it's hard to I mean, it's hard to say. That's such a standard uh, political reporter answer. But I mean, you know, Missouri is a pretty red state. No amount of look how manly or look how whatever I am is going to overcome a certain amount of partisan lean, right? Uh so uh, who even knows on that point? But Look, this has been tried before. For example, in 2020, the Lincoln Project, which is a D.C. outfit that really just formed as a never Trump outfit to try to defeat Trump and get him out of office. They put out these ads really trying to take aim at Trump's masculinity like they they were playing the same game that Lucas Kuntz is playing here. Hey, Donald, your campaign manager told you a million fans wanted to come to your first big rally. Turnout in Tulsa? A dud. You've probably heard this before, but it was smaller than we expected. It sure wasn't as big as you promised. Honestly, we're not surprised. They did these ads where you had this woman with the kind of husky voice saying, Donald, we saw that your crowds weren't as big as you said they were. (laughs) And like, oh, good Lord. You know, it's like it's just it's heavy handed and like. You know, and the thing is, I understand. Who wouldn't understand? You're taking Donald Trump and trying to play him at his own game. But the thing that I was getting at, at in the newsletter that you talked about is, as long as this is taken as unremarkable, that you can baldly go out and say, I should win because I'm more of a man than him. What other identity do we do that with? Except maybe Trump and his money. Maybe. But I mean... That is the kind of thinking that keeps women out of office, that keeps anybody who doesn't identify as a man or guy out of office. And I want to dig more into that piece of it after the break. But before we go to a break, I'm curious, how do you see all of this playing into the upcoming 2024 election? Oh, uh, it's hard. I mean, first of all, it, it depends on of course, who wins the Republican primary. But watching the Republican primaries right now, I mean, Trump is, of course, dominating. And 
There's a lot about him. There's just a Trumpy mystique that reporters like me and everyone have been trying to figure out for forever, like the hold that he has on voters and the party as a whole. And I think a big part of that is his like guy charisma, the way that he goes out and talks off the cuff and he talks a lot about military hawkishness, like bombing this place, bombing that place, killing our enemies and opponents. And hawkishness is another thing that really plays into macho penis politics, whatever you want to call them. So and I think that that is still alive and well with Trump. The crowds love him. You talk to Trump voters about him and they're like, he's strong. He's great. You really hear a lot about strong and tough from his voters. And the, really, the rest of the Republican candidates haven't been able to able to counter that. Ron DeSantis has like he made a real play towards it, in part by trying to do, quote unquote, tough policies in Florida that were very, you know, culture war oriented. And it turns out that when he's on the stump, when he's on the debate stage, he he just doesn't have the Trump thing about him. I heard an NPR piece this morning, actually, from one of my colleagues where a voter said like that they just kind of found DeSantis a little they didn't say off-putting, but they were like, I just don't like his persona. And I think that th- that has really kind of been to his detriment. I mean, the really interesting thing is how Nikki Haley plays with her gender on the Republican side, because Republican women, I feel, are very constrained in how they show their gender and how they they're more constrained than Democratic women, I think, and how they talk about it, whether they talk about it. That sort of thing, because Republican voters over and over have told me, I don't care about gender. I'll just vote for whoever is best. To me, that correlates to I don't want to hear about it. So I'm curious if she'll even how many words she'll even say about it. Should it come down to that? What about Democrats? In the presidential race, I I mean, Joe Biden, like Trump, like what made the Biden-Trump head-to-head so interesting was that you had two guys who are good at connecting to people. Like, Biden is known for being uh, that guy that will walk through a crowd and shake hands with everyone and say hello to everyone and really seem to mean it. And he still has that, but I have read stories about him not wanting to come off as grandpa. He still wants to be the guy with voters. And so with him being painted as old, and look, he is old. I'm curious whether he can hold on to that, his sort of like tough, brash, fun Uncle Joe persona instead of, you know, Grandpa Joe persona. We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Danielle and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're doing a part two of Danielle's last appearance on The Waves. She joined us just before having a baby to talk about the menace of cool moms, so we're going to see if she's changed her mind now that she is a mom. And if you're already a Slate Plus member, thank you so, so, so much for your contributions. Because of you, shows like The Waves are possible. If you're not a Slate Plus member, please consider joining and supporting the show. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, bonus content of shows like this one, along with shows like Slate Money, Slow Burn, all the good ones. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus.
Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shana Roth. I'm with Daniel Kurtzleben. And we're talking about penis politics, putting the dick in politics, if you will. (laughs) I think when a lot of people think about masculinity politics, they probably think about Donald Trump, not because he is actually masculine or macho, in my opinion, but because he talked in those terms so much during his original campaign, and he continues to do so. But Danielle, talk to us about penis politics before Trump. I feel like even Ronald Reagan, Teddy Roosevelt, they participated in this type of macho man campaigning. I mean, Roosevelt even had a speech called the man in the arena. And of course, you know, Putin oh, yeah. over in Russia got himself up on a horse while shirtless. So this isn't even something that's limited to America. What is it about politics, which if we're being honest, is kind of a nerdy thing to get into politics. I mean, it can be a very wonky, it can be a very niche thing. What is it about it that makes so many men want to seem macho in order to get elected? Power. Power. That's it. End of podcast. No, I mean, (laughs) I... You're right. I mean, first of all, it's when it comes to what makes uh, men want to get into politics. I mean, I I do. The short answer that I could give you is power, and the long answer would require more psychology maybe than I know. But what I can talk about is the history that you were asking about of manly politics in America. And it's it's very long. I mean, since time immemorial, men have portrayed themselves to voters as manly men. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, was an outdoorsman and he had the whole speak softly and carry a big stick thing. And beyond Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, you used to have military generals who stood a chance of being president. You know, Dwight Eisenhower became president and he was known as this great, strong military leader, which definitely helped him, of course. George Washington, arguably elected because he was a military guy. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. But in the age of TV, especially of really creating a literal image, this all really changed. I mean, there's that forever used example of John F. Kennedy versus Richard Nixon on the debate stage. You know, John F. Kennedy looking cooler not as sweaty, looking young and vigorous and all of that, whereas Richard Nixon looked a little schlubby compared to him. I mean, you can just trace it from there. And since then, those images can make or break a president. There was that image of Mike Dukakis in the tank with the helmet on, which is, you can quibble about how much that tank tanked, seriously, no pun intended, his presidential aspirations, But it certainly, uh, the consensus seems to be it really didn't help. You had Ronald Reagan riding around on a horse, George W. Bush showing off his skills on his ranch, being the cowboy and also the guy who's into baseball, that sort of thing. Furthermore, George W. Bush, I remember there was a lot of hay made during his race against John Kerry of John Kerry windsurfing. Like, John Kerry windsurfs, look at that. Namby-pamby upper-class guys do that. (laughs) I'm a cowboy. Whereas, like, George W. Bush is from a patrician, northeastern, Ivy League-educated family. Like, here's one thing. It's all about the image you create. It's not necessarily about the facts behind it. I mean, that's kind of, that's how it goes. And once again, I talked about Obama with his basketball playing. And, you know, Bill Clinton was running against Bob Dole at one point. I mean, Bill Clinton versus Bob Dole. Clinton was able to, you know, just look, act, be the cool younger dude who played saxophone and had, you know, the 
rumors about him and the ladies, it, it which arguably helped him. Also, side note, thing that blew my mind when I was researching this essay I wrote is that after the allegations came out about Monica Lewinsky, by the end of all of that, Bill Clinton's approval rating was higher. It was higher. And that probably, that seems maybe wild from our Me Too era. To me, it seems wild. But you could argue that I wonder to what degree that might have helped him a little. Like, look at this guy. He likes young ladies. What are you going to do? I'm clearly totally speculating there, but I don't know if it's totally unreasonable speculation. No, I don't think it's unreasonable speculation at all. I mean, it, it makes him a guy, you know? I mean, and that's what we saw when Donald Trump was running, when he had the grab them by the pussy comment. It was like, well, that makes him a guy. It's locker room talk. That's what the guys talk about. And therefore, it's okay. Yeah. But like, I do want to add something here because you mentioned other world leaders like Vladimir Putin. There was Yair Bolsonaro in Brazil, people who are referred to as strongmen. And there is a good reason for that. I mean, there's a whole book by this by Ruth Ben-Ghiat. I highly recommend people pick it up. It's called Strongmen. But manliness does go hand in hand with this and other policy areas. When leaders start leaning into authoritarian politics, one kind of twist they can put on it is, I'm too tough. Only wimps would wait around for the election results or would allow the election results to be litigated or whatever. I'm the winner. I'm strong enough and I can just say it flat out because I am smart and tough. I win. And also my policies stand. We don't need to do this thing of compromising or working with people. We're just going to do what I want. Like that is what that is a very authoritarian way of thinking. And you can use masculinity to sell that kind of politics. So let's talk about masculinity and power, but plenty of women have run for different offices and won, but they have to go at it from a very different, more complex way. And I'm curious, I mean, how do women wade in these waters? I mean, the only thing that I could come up with was Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel when she was running in 2018. If the last few weeks has taught us anything, it's that we need more women in positions of power, not less. So when you're choosing Michigan's next attorney general, ask yourself this. Who can you trust most not to show you their penis in a professional setting? Is it the candidate who doesn't have a penis? I'd say so. She had an ad that basically said, vote for me because I don't have a penis to harass you with. (laughs) I had forgotten that, but that's (laughs) burned into my brain. That's a hell of a tactic. And it's really the only time that I've seen a woman running for office even mention penises really like the male gender sort of in general. And I think she got away with it in part because she's a lesbian and because that was all part of her shtick, which is that she is like brash, tough talking. She's just going to say whatever's on her mind. And that's a personality trait that has, you know, sort of carried with her throughout her time as attorney general. I mean, did she find a niche way or is that just something that's like a one in a million offshoot and like 
I guess, how do women handle this? It sounds like she did find a way that especially worked for the time, because that was 2018, as you said. And first of all, it worked for Democratic voters who cared a lot, lot, lot about sexual harassment, about Me Too. Polls showed, you know, were they were more activated by that than Republican voters, which makes sense. So, yes, that worked for her, but I'm not sure... I'm not sure how applicable it is to other situations. Now, we can get at how it works in different parties, though, because when it comes to the Republican Party, I remember, especially in 2018, talking to a Republican pollster about women who were running that year, because that was the year that all the Democratic women ran and and won. It broke records, of course. And I asked her about the Republican women, and she said, well... What you're seeing a lot of this year is a lot of Republican women sending out mailers, doing their ads with with them holding guns, often big guns. And the way that she put it was that was a kind of signifier to voters like, you might look at me as a woman and think that I'm a little less conservative, a little softer on policy than the men are, because that is a thing that's that does happen to some voters. They see a woman or a person of color and think, oh, they're probably more liberal. So then you have to kind of prove your bona fides. Like, nope, here I am with a rifle. I really am a hardcore conservative. Like, you re- like really trying to sell it. So in some ways, some women who run for office, especially on the Republican side, which has elected fewer women, you could make a very convincing argument that they feel the need to really show that they are comfortable with some of the tropes of masculinity. Not too comfortable. They still have to be ladies, but can at least sort of speak the language and look like they know how to handle a gun, for example. Now, on the Democratic side, my thoughts are a little less formed on this because it's more complicated. But one thing that I think about a lot is the Democratic love affair, particularly in swing districts, with women who have been in the military, female military veterans. And look, when I say love affair, I do not put quote marks around that. Thank you for your service. Military service is great. That is not what I'm saying at all. There's nothing remarkable about voters liking people who have been in the military, but these are the candidates that end up getting a lot, lot of attention. And I think that I I am going to make some educated speculation here that perhaps it's easier for some voters to be comfortable when she has that particular brand of toughness, not just having served her country, but, you know, it's a lady who served her country, potentially in combat. She knows how to handle the guy things. And maybe she has a kind of stamp of approval. And and look, women who have run for office who are veterans know what they're doing, I think, when they really, when they put their fighter planes in the ad with them, for example, when they show photos of them in the Air Force, et cetera. Like that, that, that is very much a big selling point, I imagine, for women candidates. It seems like women still have that sort of likability factor to contend with. Where, But instead of it being like, well, are you a man or are you a guy? It's it's a bit more nuanced than that. You know, we want a woman who can hang, but we also want her to be fragile enough and feminine enough that we know that she's definitely a woman because we don't want any ambiguity about any of that. But at the same time, she needs to be competent, but not too competent. And it just seems like, how do we even get women elected in the first place, particularly for president? Because we had arguably one of the most competent, 
people to ever run. And yes, Hillary Clinton was a very, very flawed candidate. But I think when she lost to Donald Trump, a lot of people, at least at the time, were like, oh, my God, are we never going to make this happen? And I think we've probably forgotten about that in the years since. Yeah, I I, I could go on and on about this topic for hours and days and whatever. I, where to begin? So, the first thing I think of when you talk about that, the likability gap, is that I have often wondered if, particularly if you are the kind of woman who is close enough to be able to try to reach for president, if you have reached those upper echelons of American political life, you are probably pretty driven, pretty smart. You are, I mean, you're kind of Hermione Granger, right? And, you know, you you haven't lost a race up until that point, for example. You're the woman who's known for her plans. You're Hillary Clinton, who had a plan for everything, and it was detailed. None of which is fun, by the way. Like, talking about dynamic scoring isn't going to win over, isn't going to win over voters, you know? So, I think that is one thing that kind of stands in the way because of the whole backwards and high heels Ginger Rogers thing. The the kind of person you have to be to get there might just be the person who is more focused on doing things on their merits than getting by on charisma, perhaps is a is a good way of putting it. Don't get me wrong. Plenty of those women have charisma. I saw a lot of them on the stump. They were great. I do want to tease this out a little bit because there is one nuance we haven't gotten to, though, which is the difference between running for president and running for other offices, right? Because running for president is a very, very particular thing. You are running to be the figurehead, more than a figurehead, but the symbol of the country, right? The the commander in chief of the armed forces, as we always say, but also just the person that people think of in our country and around the world when they think of the United States. that The symbolic nature of it, I think, makes some voters uncomfortable with electing a woman to that position. Whereas if you're talking about members of Congress, I talked to one expert in this once, and she said this thing that stuck with me, where she said she thinks voters are more comfortable with electing women to Congress because they think of members of Congress as people who serve them. Like, you're going there to serve me and my friends and my family and my interests. And so there may be a bit more fine sending a woman to Congress because she's just one of many, one of equals, and is there to do that particular job, not to necessarily lead. And I think that is a, a pretty reasonable way to think about it. One other thing I would say is that what one reason that you do see more women in Congress than the presidency, and this is pretty obvious, but is that, and more types of women, by the way, is because you have a lot of safe districts uh, in the House and a lot of safe states. Maybe too safe, I, I totally understand. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, who associated with the DSA, cares about fashion, wears bright red lipstick and tells people what shade it is, that sort of thing. I don't know if a presidential candidate is going to do that anytime soon as a woman. But if you're in a safe blue district and the people in your district like you, you have a bit more freedom to be yourself, you know. And like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene similarly is in a pretty red district and she's just going to MTG, do the, do the things that she does and take the positions that strike a lot of people as wacky. Or as, you know, fringe. and But she's just going to keep doing her because she is 
because she's in a safe district. Now, are we going to see any women running for president on the Republican side who look like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Probably also not. Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter for NPR. You can also find her amazing Substack at daniellekurtzleben.substack.com. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shana Roth, and Vic Whitley-Berry. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would love to hear from you. Please, please, please email us at thewaves at slate.com. Tell us your thoughts, ideas for the show, really just whatever's on your mind. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. 